0: What's up everybody and welcome back to the Sex and Self podcast, a place where you can learn a little bit about yourself and hopefully a lot about sex. Today I have a wonderful guest with us, one of my long-term mentors, Julia Anderson. Julia, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, hi, so happy to be here. My name is Julia and I am the CEO of the Canadian Partnership for Women and Children's Health and yeah, have been hanging out with Felicia for uh, with you for quite some time.
0: I know. And this is our first time in real life. This is my first ever
1: in-person
0: po- yeah. podcast. This is crazy oh. talking. Yeah, I've never done this before. It's always on Zoom. Okay. So, well, is... so it might be awkward. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. We'll I, don't see. Know. <laughs>
1: I guess I've never recorded a podcast in person either.
0: No. So going can be your first of both. I know. Julia's in my apartment. We're hanging out. It's yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really nice to have you here. Thank it's you. Really nice to be here. And Julia has been someone that I've looked to quite often for mentorship and, you know, leadership insight and what it's like to be a woman in this industry. But I kind of want to talk to you a little bit about how you got here, because obviously it wasn't something that happened overnight. And uh, I know that it's been I think for a lot of people, it's a very like individual and uh, like challenging and strange journey being kind of a ceo and being a woman and being in this industry too so i kind of want to ask you like from the beginning like how did you kind of get into this industry and like were you always hungry for uh you know did you always see yourself in a leadership position or did you always want to be kind of where you are now was that like the end goal
1: yeah, that's an interesting and complicated question because I grew up uh, steeped in evangelical fundamentalism, Whoa. which uh, which played a really formative and interesting role in my life. So I wanted to be a missionary oh, when I was young. My wow. goal—I that my grandparents were missionaries, both my parents had been missionaries. So I wanted to be a missionary. So I saw myself as for sure out in the world and doing good or what I perceived to be good. Um, And within my church, so without going uh, too deep into the technical details of uh, fundamentalism, churches are very different in how they treat women. So overall, patriarchy brains. That is 100% true. Uh, But there's different, I think, approaches to the way that women and young women are treated within the church. And mine was, I would say, on the progressive side. So They really saw that women and men had a role in taking God's message forward um, and and enabled that. So my first speeches uh, on big stages with five, six hundred, sometimes a thousand people were all through my experience at the church. I was up, you know, giving testimony or things like this. I did a lot of drama, a lot of art, a lot of creative kind of, you know, um, a critical part of the way that evangelical Christianity spreads is through people who are good with words and good with ideas and things like that. And that was highly valued in my church. And so I was a bit of um, a star within the the church community um, and certainly incredibly passionate about that. So did I see myself in a leadership position? Sort of, I knew that I couldn't be a pastor you know, or an elder. So the highest positions within the church were occupied solely by men. And that was by policy um, or by practice of that church community. So I didn't really have a clear picture. I definitely never said to myself as a young person, oh, I'm going to be a CEO or, or lead something. But I obviously had some skills and competencies with traditional leadership things like, you know, being able to talk to crowds, being able to convince and um, negotiate and influence and those kinds of things. And I was using those tactics, uh, just for very different purposes than I, uh, have landed now using some of those same skills that I developed.
0: That's so, that's ridiculous. It's, it's crazy. Cause I feel like a lot of people, especially in this industry of like, uh, family, maternal children's health, we've all had like a weird path to kind of getting here and to advocating for the work that we see so important, because unfortunately, we've like fallen kind of to the neglect of like how our society treats specifically women and children. Um, and not specifically, I know you do more things like on a global scale, but I do think that, that that upbringing probably had impacted you as a young girl. Absolutely. And I mean, even so the
1: organization that I, I now lead, uh, our original Formation. We are an informal uh, steering committee called the Canadian network for maternal newborn child health does not have a nice acronym. Ken <laughs> lunch, just saying that we, we improved, hired an amazing comms person and improved on that front. Can watch is a lot nicer. Um, but the reason that, that Ken CH formed was because of all the then millennium development goals. So this was the world's progress report report card on um, all measures related to poverty, inequality, wealth, um, environmental, on all uh, MDGs we're moving forward, except for on maternal and newborn child health. So those were the only two MDGs where we are slipping further and further behind. And in this moment, um, and this is getting into some of the policy stuff, I know we don't wanna spend a ton of time here, but at this point with the world on fire as it is, with crisis unfolding everywhere, what are we seeing slip first, fastest, and falling furthest behind? It's women's health. And it's, it's always the case, whether you're talking about the pointy edges of the women's health uh, sort of sector around abortion, around SRH or the kind of work you do, or whether you're talking about just moms and babies and you know the very kind of apple pie sort of work, it's always the first to go. And I, I think that's a really... You know, it's a really interesting study in the way our society is set up, even at the most basic health interventions to hold women behind. And so, you know, I'm very passionate about that. And I think, yeah, it did weave. It did weave. I mean, my reason, my rationale for leaving the church was fundamentally because women couldn't take leadership roles. And so I excommunicated myself at a fairly young age. I was about 18, um, completely from the church because of that, and also the, you know, the incredibly problematic uh, relationship that the church had with LGBTQI people. And I'd had enough friends hospitalized because they just wanted to be who they were, um, you know, with suicide, depression and things that I, I made my way out um, and officially excommunicated myself, I think, yeah, when I was 18 years old.
0: And so how did that affect your relationship with your family? So my dad had left
1: the church. Uh, and had excommunicated himself from the church my mom and my my the rest of my family was still in uh still fairly involved in in the church and then my extended family for sure i would say the one beautiful or maybe confusing thing about evangelicals is that they do draw on love as their primary reaction at least in my case And so I didn't, you know, I wasn't one of those stories you hear of Southern evangelicals and things where their family cut them off and no longer had communication, but I would say it it made for complicated conversations around the dinner table, complicated conversations. I mean, when I disclosed to my parents uh, that I was having sex, this is a sex and self podcast. And I remember, (laughs) I remember because like, who tells, anyways, It was a weird thing, to, but because it was such a signal that I left the church, I felt like it was really important uh, that I tell my parents that I was having sex outside of marriage because this was 100% unacceptable from uh, the evangelical fundamentalist uh, perspective. And my father said, well, don't get AIDS and don't get pregnant, which I failed on one of those fronts. Uh, And, (laughs) you, you know, my mother said she felt like it was a death. Uh, in the family like it was such a a signal to her that i was you know my internal eternal damnation was uh, a sure thing that it, it really felt to her and i believe that it felt to her like like it was a a death in the family right and so those reactions um you know i think speak to the way in which those sincerely held beliefs play out in people's minds because i believe that it was fear that that caused her to make that comment. Um, But it also, you know, it's rather disturbing that that would be, that having sex, something so beautiful, I was in a consensual, lovely relationship, and that that couldn't be discussed outside of those two comments. Now, when I told my mother that I was pregnant, uh, which was, by the way, only a few months after the conversation about having said that I was having sex, um, because... (laughs) family planning and birth control were not conversations we talked about in the church and we're not allowed to go to sex ed and things like that in school. Um, and so when I, I told her that her reaction was I'll quit my job and I'll take care of the baby so that you can go to school. So she redeemed, she redeemed herself in, uh, in that conversation. Um, but I, I imagine it would have been a quite different conversation if I had said I was choosing to terminate the pregnancy. I didn't choose that, but I can imagine that it, I would not have had a, a receptive. I don't even know if I would have told my parents in that case. I probably would have taken that on my own.
0: Yeah, I think what's really beautiful about that conversation that you just kind of disclosed is that I think your mom probably comes from a lot of religious trauma, which is why she had those responses But it's like interesting. I talked to a lot of people who have a lot of sexual trauma and it's, I think it's very easy for us to blame kind of our elders, but I think it's, it's much harder for us to forgive them because they're also traumatized in their own way. Like I can't imagine being however old your mom was and being indoctrinated into this belief system and fundamentally believing it. I don't even know if she's still a part of the church. She is. Yeah. yeah. She is. Yeah. So I can't imagine what that, you know, after so many years of, of believing something, and then hearing these two things from something that you love so much, you're like a child, I can't imagine a love yeah. deeper than that, go so fundamentally against the things that you, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously she could have had a better reaction, but it's much it's, it's much harder, but it's also so much more admirable to show a lot of grace in those situations because she's also got her own sexual trauma that she probably has never worked through.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the books, so the, the books that women read in advance of getting married in the evangelical church there, I mean, there's passages, and again, this is, I don't speak for everyone, I speak only for, from, there's a lot of versions of fundamental evangelicalism, and I think it's it's dangerous to make broad statements, but from my own experience, I mean, it's all about the submission to your husband, right? And there's a couple of verses in the Bible that are read at every wedding about, you know, husbands submit to the Lord, or wives submit to be your husbands as your husbands submit to the Lord, men are the head of the household as Christ is the head of the church. Um, I mean, it's still after 25 years after leaving, these are uh, imprinted in my brain and, and like, yeah, the kinds of books that you would read, they're sort of fifties housewife things like show up for your husband after a tough day of work with dinner in one hand and sexy lingerie uh, underneath so that you can both please him in both ways. Like it's make sure the kids are in bed. so. Some of those things that we associate with just old school thinking, but in a very, when you're tying that to your eternal life, right, you're tying that to either being damned to go to hell or going to heaven, the stakes are just slightly higher, right? And your husband is really becomes this, um, uh, this avenue in which you express your christianity um and and so I think like I used to have nightmares as a kid of having chosen the wrong husband because i and i this was a reoccurring and terrifying nightmare that I would choose the wrong husband who would then not let me do the things that I wanted to do and then I'd have to somehow be a better wife so that he would allow me to do so those are the kind of messages that I was somehow and my parents had a fairly equal relationship i wasn't seeing it play out but that message was loud and clear coming from the church community and certainly when it came to sex it was it was right in there right and i i occasionally listen to old friends and and things like this talk and it's just i mean it's it's such a disconnected i think religious trauma can really disconnect women from their bodies and from their you know when when you are natural everything that's natural comes back to the original sin and is evil and women are kind of the root of that evil i yeah it's really hard i think to develop from there a healthy relationship to sex and sexuality and and even just self right like who you are and and how you operate so no that was definitely and i mean i think for my mom She was sad. She was sad that this rising star, like someone that she was uh, really proud of when it came to my faith and how that faith played out on a very large stage, was so dramatically exiting um, that, that way of thinking. And I think my dad, for him, it was just being out in the secular world, he was still pretty new to it, so I don't think he really had the tools to be like, well, that's great, but let's have a conversation about you know. I think that's tough for dads anyway. Although my my partner would do that with my kids, that's great. But let's have a conversation about what that means and how to keep you safe and healthy. Um, so his attempt at that was, you know, two instructions: don't get pregnant and don't, don't get babies.
0: Just like yeah, I mean, yeah. It sounds like he did his best with. What he could, what he had, That's what he right. had, and what he yeah. could do. But so you mentioned getting pregnant at nineteen and being in that really nice. You you described it as like a nice relationship. How was that relationship for you? Was it like a pivotal moment? Was it something that built up?
1: So I was eighteen when I got pregnant. I was nineteen when I had my daughter, who's now uh, twenty, and just moved to Alberta, uh, which is very sad. But um. Yeah, so I was 18 when I got pregnant. I had known Oceana's father for uh, only a few months. So we hadn't been uh, together for, for a long time. And I mean, I think anyone in, you, I, I find the, the conversation about choice and the pro-choice and anti-choice movement, such an interesting, it, it's an interesting use of the word choice because I think there's a huge difference between choice and options. And just because the options are available to you to terminate a pregnancy to take, you know, the day after pill to use contraception, which is a huge part of what we talk about when those options aren't available, you have no choice. Yeah. So if you're if you're in a a low or middle income country, and your pharmacy is out of the pill that you've been taking for six months, and there's no alternative, um, and you know, your partner is not going to use condoms. You, you don't have a choice and that's because of a lack of options. But sometimes when all the options are on the table, choice is still a construction. It's still, it still has to come from everything within you that's built up over years of whatever training, the imprints of the sort of teaching that you have, the sort of uh, examples that you have around you and your ability to access those options can still be quite, quite limited, you know? And so when I got pregnant, um, there, there was no question in my mind around having an abortion or not. There was, there was no, that option that was on the table was not a choice that I could access at that point. I was so fresh from leaving the church. It was the same year that I left the church. I was still really grappling with a lot of those with my, you know, with my soul, like these big existential questions still trying to figure out if I was um, you know, gonna go to heaven or hell or if those places even existed. Um, there was no, for me, there was not a big decision there. It was, uh, I knew that I wanted uh, to have the child. I knew that I had made the decision to get into that situation. And I also, though I didn't anticipate the degree to which my family would be supportive and amazing, I did, my best guess would be that they would be supportive you know, and that they would do what it took to make sure that this child was well loved. It's also very typical for women within the church to get pregnant very young, uh, because you're not having sex before marriage, you get married young, many of my cousins got married before they were 18. And so I wasn't my cousin who is exactly my age, our kids are the same, uh, kids are the same age. So it wasn't untypical in that community of fundamentalists, to have children quite young. So it wasn't shocking in that way, in a way that I think it would be quite shocking in a lot of communities to be pregnant at that age. Um, and my entire family, I mean, all of all of the reaches, my grandfather, who was a pastor, my other grandfather, I remember him saying, well, a lot of kids do it and just many of them don't get caught. You know, like that was <laughs> his response. Which was hilarious. Um, so I got caught, and he recognized the kind of unfairness in the way that that was placed on women and not men. And um, you know, I, I got nothing but um, nothing but support from my family, which I think a lot of women are not uh, do not have that luxury of a mom who's like, "Yeah, I'll quit. You need to go to school. You know, I'll quit my job," which she more or less did. By the way, she moved across the country. Uh, I moved to Ontario from then Saskatchewan and. My whole family came with me uh, uh, a year after I moved out. My dad got offered a job transfer, and they all moved out to Ontario oh, and my God. helped me raise uh, the amazing adult that is my daughter uh, now. So they they put action behind those words too, for sure.
0: That's so that's so lucky. But I I really appreciate the way you presented choice because I think that that's something that we kind of neglect to factor into, especially in like a country like Canada where you think that. Or, or for for the most part most of these resources are quite available if you have access to a pharmacy which isn't something that is like accessible in like indigenous communities but for most local and rural communities you have access to these things but i think also bringing in that religious element is like super important in the conversation cuz you you probably did have access to those resources but had anyone told you that those were available
1: no definitely not. And there's also, I mean, this is getting into it. It's like the stuff of therapy sessions, but there's also when, when you're so conditioned to believe that something is so wrong. And I would say, uh, sex is an obsession of evangelical Christians. Like I went to like Bible study things that were weeks, these programs that were weeks and weeks on end all about how not to have sex. Like it's an obsession. Sex is an <laughs> obsession in the evangelical Christian community. What? And yeah, you know, no Dr. Dobson, look him up. Like, and he encouraged boys to masturbate before uh, dates, but girls, there was no thought because girls didn't seek pleasure according to Dr. Dobson. Um, but for boys, it was good that they could release while trying not to fantasize because fantasizing was sinful too. It was a whole thing. I mean, it's just so ridiculous the lengths that the evangelical fundamentalist community will go to to embed within its community that sex is so wrong until you get married and then you're supposed to have like wild, crazy sex.
0: Yeah, and that happens overnight. You learn how to do that in one moment. Oh yeah. One swift moment.
1: (laughs) The ring goes on and you're a wild woman in bed. No, and this was, I mean, huge issue for so many of my friends and cousins and family who, you know, there's no... Yeah. I think after you've turned well, yourself off for that
0: long, it's really hard to flip that switch. Have you seen um, Bridgerton the, <laughs> the first season where so good. they're yeah. asking like, how do you, how does one make a baby? And it's just like, and then you're supposed to get married and then the mom takes you into the room the night of your wedding. And she tells you all of these things, like how stressful Yeah, to like, you have to put the performance of your lifetime on.
1: Totally. And we, I mean, there was a bit of a tradition within our community that the night before, so the bachelorette party, what, what in the secular world, you call the bachelorette party. There is a prayer session for the bride, but also a passing on of wisdom, but the wisdom. And I've, I can't tell you how many of these I've been to, but the wisdom. So I remember being at one where uh, I had a kid by this time. So clear. I'm having sex because I produced a child. So sex is in the equation. but I wasn't married. And so the circle went around. And so if you're an unmarried woman, you're supposed to just sort of pass and just engage in the prayer. But I decided I should pitch in with my advice too on good sex. Oh, it was the, the whole group then left the room and left me alone in the room to go take the prayer. Like it was like I had desecrated the ceremonial aspect of it. It was, Stop. yeah, it was terrible. But, but to this point, um, when you think about birth control, and I really think about this, um, in the context of the family planning work we do at Kenwatch, because if you're conditioned to believe that your body is bad, you, you yourself are born into the original sin. Um, and that sex is like, not just bad. It's like, Really bad. Like if you have to choose between murder and sex, you might want to choose like it's really bad. You're unsure. It's like murder, sex. (laughs) I'm yeah, one or the other. So if you have that kind of mentality, then something like, and 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 when I was when my doctor said to me, you know, I was like red faced, I'm sure, saying she asked if I was sexually active, I'm an 18-year-old woman. Um, she's not religious. And she asked if I was sexually active and I had to say yes. And it was really hard for me even to say it. She's like, well, you need to go on the pill. Like condoms that you were using are not 100% effective. Um, And especially if you're not using them all the time, right? So she's trying to give me some education. The idea of taking a pill every day that was a reminder of how sinful I was and how even though i had left the church, there was no way, right? There was no way I could confront it at that point with with that level of commitment to take a pill every day um and and so as she rightly predicted I was pregnant within not very long um and and I think it's really interesting because when we go into communities and and talk to people about what are the barriers it's again it's not always about the options on the table sometimes it's about the options that are quite internalized um, to these these women and girls and Folks all along the gender spectrum who need to make choices that are preventative um, because they don't, they know the future state that they don't want to be in. Uh, but working backwards sometimes is not, it's not a straight line, right?
0: Yeah. And I think sometimes the unlearning is even harder than the learning itself. Absolutely. So it's like, it's very hard to teach. What's the saying? Like, it's hard to teach. Uh, like an old dog, new tricks. Mm -hmm. And that's like, so relevant to this whole conversation. Yeah. And so when you kind of got to that point, and you had the support of your family, and you continued to pursue your education, what was that like, like, I can barely keep myself alive. So like the thought of having another person, and even just, you know, it's, I I can't imagine what that responsibility is like, even with the support of a whole family unit, like, that's still your child. Did you like, like, how was that balanced? And also how did you make money?
1: Mm. So yeah, both interesting questions. I, um, so I moved to Ontario because I wanted to study international development. Uh, and there was only three universities in Canada that offered it and they were all in Ontario. So I applied um, and picked a town that I'd never been to, Peterborough, because I was, I got into U of T and Guelph. I think it was Guelph both who had development programs. And I'm like, Toronto seems really big. Like, <laughs> it feels like a big city. So maybe I won't do that with the new baby. Um, and Guelph seemed too much like the, the city I'd grown up with. So Peterborough seemed a bit different. So I chose that, moved out here. It was, like I said, about a year later that my family moved out. Um, Oceana's father moved moved out as well. And, I mean, I think it's it's been fascinating to watch For me, my friends who did it the correct way and in their 30s had children or their late 20s, they've had these entire adult lives that they then need to let go of, right? Like they grieve for the loss of the time, the energy, the space. I went from high school to motherhood, right? Yeah, I I, I lived, luckily I did live a year alone. My last year of high school, Mm -hmm. I stayed in Alberta when my family moved to Saskatchewan. So I had like, I knew how to pay a bill, Um, but I pretty much went to, from high school to motherhood. So I didn't know any other life, you know, and I just didn't know any other options. So for me, it made sense. I think the biggest um, challenge was not knowing how to self-advocate. So when you feel like an exception or an other, so other people don't have kids, you do, it can be really hard sometimes to, to outline your needs when you feel like you're this constant exception. And I remember at um, my first job, this woman was in and she was in, so she was in her 30s, I think, and she had had a baby and gone to teacher's college and we were having this conversation. So I'm 21, 22 at my first job. She's 31, 32, just finishing teacher's college. And we're commiserating on how challenging it is to have a baby and go to school. And she's like, oh, but I just, why didn't you just bring your baby and like just breastfeed and that's your right. And kind of took a bit of an offense to me saying it was so hard to find childcare. She's sort of in that community of people who maybe question childcare. They just, and I was like, yeah, easy for you to say like you're 32 years old, you know, you're paying for school and you have a right to be there. Like I, I'm feeling like an outs, I felt like an outsider the entire time for me to bring my baby into a class when like, I already felt like I barely belonged in the class in the first place. And there's all these like secular people that I don't know this world of sex. Like it's all a new world for me. Um, And I'm not going to be like popping out the boob and breastfeeding in class. Like that's just, I'm not their friends.
0: But you're also a peer. Like, she's not a peer anymore. Like, when you're 31 in a university class, you're not a peer.
1: Exactly. It's a totally different ballgame.
0: Like, it's it's, you can't, like, especially because your peers don't have anything, like, they can't compare their life to yours at all. And it's not like there's a a row of 21-year-olds in the breastfeeding section of lecture. Yeah.
1: Like. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, years later... I had my son. So 11 years later, I had uh, my second child and I was doing my master's at that point, part time while working full time. So like him and I went on a field course to Mexico when he was seven months old, six months old, and I was popping out my boob with the entire undergraduate class. I'm the only master's student. No issues, right? Because it just, I was grounded in who I was and I also knew that these these were not, as you said, my peers, these were younger students. And I was felt like I could norm because I was the first mom that they would run into and I could norm what was going on. And I was in a supportive environment, but yeah, I just, I remember feeling the judgment, which I think, um, you know, people talk about how judgmental the community that I was raised in is, which is absolutely true. I think we in the feminist community, need to really check ourselves around how judgmental we are and how, you know, the kind of woke Olympics of being um, so performative and so scripted in how we act as feminists and not recognizing that people come from a whole host of places. And certainly when I think about, you know, equity and diversity and experiences like that of women of color, which I, I can't I can't understand and I, I don't know. I haven't had those experiences. Some of those lessons of being othered in that way are what I take into that because I think, you know, just recognizing that people come from really different places, right? And that, yes, sex and self, amazing. I'm so proud of what you're doing and I love what you're doing because it's it's about this wake awakening. But I think we have to recognize that that awakening can be so slow and so, you know, make space for the baby steps that people are trying to take because we're not all at the, we're not all at the same level, comfort with the same words, comfort with the same things. Um, And we want to make a, to make an inclusive community. I think we have to be really cognizant of that, which I know you are.
0: Well, I, I think it's a learning curve and I think we're like all growing into it. And I think that... I think that it's really important to kind of take in those those different elements because everyone has such a different journey. And especially with sex, like the starting line is not the same for everyone. That's true. And so kind of growing into your career with your daughter, how did you like how did you find taking those strategic steps forward while still having that responsibility of a child, like how, how was that kind of accounted for in your brain or was it just something that kind of, you know, uh, you know, things kind of just happen and it was something that fell into your lap. Cause I know you worked for the government for a little bit and then you got into the nonprofit sphere. So what was that like being so young and starting to do that?
1: I was really lucky. Uh, my first job, so I had probably put out 200 to 300 resumes And this is a time where you were, it was a hybrid of emailing and mailing. So some things were online, but um, it's 2005. So you still had uh, many, which you were printing and, and sending in. So I was located in Peterborough, which is outside of Toronto. I, Oceana's father was willing to maybe move to a different place. Um, At that point we were shared, you know, sharing responsibilities, but not living together, um and so i knew that i needed to, he was still in school i knew i needed to like get myself together uh and i just got so lucky this little international development organization in peterborough ontario the only international development organization offered a one year contract which you had to have been on ei it was through service canada but because I had some parental leave when I had my daughter, I had three months of EI, which is the same program. Um, they allowed it. I qualified, and so it was sort of a retraining. But I, I, I qualified because I had been through the EI system, and so I got my first one-year position. The executive director was this tremendous, expansive, mentor, thoughtful just amazing human. And she said at the beginning, she's like, this is only a one-year program. I don't have funding for more. Um, We'll do our best, but we, it really is a one-year position and we'll try to help you find something else. Um, But one year turned into five and that was my first. So we were hustling for uh, grant applications and working hard. And it was this little three-person shop and what a tremendous uh, experience. But I think the real, the real moment, that it shifted for me after that. And I often had to bartend on the side um, because that position wasn't always full time. Um, so that's how I kept my head above water was I would do my, I think I was making like $18,000 a year with Jamaican self-help. And then I would, my goal was always to make 30. Um, and so that was often made up with bartending and working at restaurants. Uh, and that meant that I could pay rent. Uh, pay for childcare that I needed my, again, my mom really helped out a lot in that. Um, but I could kind of keep my head above water. There's no, I'm not paying off student loans at this point or like saving any money, but I'm keeping my head above water and buying groceries. Um, and then, uh, then when I needed to move on from there, I made a choice to move into government specifically so that I could start, getting my head above water beyond that bartend at night, not for profit during the day, kind of the hustle of that because I was pretty tired. Um, And so I got a job with the funder who had funded the program that I worked for uh, and did that for a few years and then worked in the university. So after that, it started to come a little bit easier, but I I just turned 40 uh, a couple months ago. And I would say this is the first time in my life that I feel like, if I were to leave this amazing once in a lifetime job that I have now, I might have some options. And so when you think about that, that's a long haul of like, of, you know, engaging and I wouldn't have every option that I want, but I think I would probably have some options in front of me. Um, And so that I hope that's not discouraging to people. I think it's also an employee's market right now. So Maybe others will have a faster go, but it hasn't been for the last couple of decades, right? Like the not-for-profit sector has diminished, the international cooperation sector has diminished. Like it's it's not been an easy. I think government has shrunk, right? Like all these mm-hmm. things, and baby boomers have not retired. Uh, they're starting to, but nope. it's taken some time.
0: Yeah, they need to. Uh, they need to skedaddle. Mm-hmm. And I love that you mentioned your age too, because. I have such a problem with people in like leadership positions and positions of power. And they're like 65, what the fuck are you doing? No, like, seriously, what, like, what are you doing for like the next generation? Like, what are you doing for the future? You're going to be dead. You're not going to be around for it. Not that I'm saying that all old people should, you know, yeah. leave their positions of power. But when we see these like really high admin positions like you, I'm sure you've been in more rooms than, than less and everyone's been older than you.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say, I'd say a couple things. I think the question of why people are working longer comes down to capitalism mm-hmm. and it comes down to the hustle that's necessary. You don't see, I mean, people who, Again, options and choices there they is complicated, but there's a reason that people are working longer and it's not necessarily just out of um, it's not it's often a lack of options to not work longer. Um, you know you paying off houses takes longer trying to support families and that kind of thing. So the question to me is how do we create space and mentorship relationships and co-leadership relationships that allow us, to not just talk about the skills that the next generation needs, but actually give people practice in a safe space to take risks and make mistakes and apply some of those different and new ideas to the workplace um, in a way that also allows for the kind of experience that comes with, you know, I have members on my, I have the most amazing board of directors. I'm super lucky. And a couple of retired uh, folks on my board and their decades of experience can answer questions before I even know that I have a question. And I've really come into a place of grounded confidence where that is so exciting to me that I can be in the room with them. It's so exciting that they can anticipate some of the challenges that I'm going to walk through and help guide and support me. I didn't feel that way when I was 29, right? When I was 29, it was a threat. And so I think we need to find, we need to find that space where, you know, not to be hippy-dippy about it, but where everyone's skills and contributions are valued. But I would say that the pendulum swings, right? The pendulum swings from get all the older folks out. And then you have, you know, when I look at the prime minister's office or when I look at our, it's a lot of young folks. And I think without that kind of experience, they're not getting the kind of support they need to be the leaders that they could be. Um, and similarly, you can have um, spaces where young people aren't allowed to lead. They're just expected to execute. So in our model, I can watch, I'm really cognizant of that. I don't know that I'm solving that problem, but I think, um. I think I'm just really excited that I am no longer threatened by someone knowing so much more than I do, and I, I that's a that's a really different place. Even when I took so I took over a CEO when I was 37 or 38 a couple of years ago, and I was so afraid to ask questions. And now I'm like, I just don't care. Like <laughs> if I don't know, I don't know. And I I know a lot of things, and I'm good a lot good at a lot of things. But there's so much more. Um, that I, I just want to be a sponge still, you know, and I hope, I hope that I can still be a sponge and not get like stuck in my ways, but I don't know. That's everyone's
0: fear. I know. Everyone's Uh, scared. of. I think that's the fear. And I think that's the nice thing about kind of this conversation is you see the fear in me, but you also know that there's so much growth to that too. And I mean, I, I, I look to you and I look to other people in leadership positions and just like with lots of experience and I try to just absorb everything because they yeah. know. Uh, but I, I do, I do agree. I think that it, it has to be a better balance and I hope that we're moving towards something like that, but going back to kind of your story and, how you've gotten to this place after 20 plus years of experience where you feel like, okay, I could leave this job and I would have options. What advice would you give to like your 20 something year old self? Like, cause I'm in the grind right now and I'm tired and I sure. call my brother often and I'm like, what am I doing this for? Like, why am I working so hard? You know, like it's mm-hmm. not paying off right now. And it's, it's a lot of the same thing that I think a lot of young people are struggling with. So what would you say to that person? I think, you know, feet
1: on the ground, heart in the moment, head in the moment, come back to your work, come back to what you're doing, not what you need to do tomorrow, but what you're doing right now. And is this one small, whether it's like making yourself a nice dinner or, uh, going for a walk outside or meditating or working on the paper or working on the thing, but coming back and grounding yourself in the right now, I think is the biggest, I spent so much, especially when I took my government job, I was quite convinced I would sold my soul and like the evangelical <laughs> references um, are, are meaningful. Like I was, I was heartbroken. That I had abandoned my path of like the not-for-profit, gritty international development, and I went from making—I'll I'll be really clear—I went from making that seventeen to twenty thousand to sixty-five thousand. So that's wow. you know a huge jump. I didn't negotiate at all, which I still regret. Um, <laughs> always negotiate. Take them for what they yeah, have. Always negotiate. Um, but you know that that was this huge jump, and I was so guilt-ridden about that because I. I was, I was like, I've abandoned my purpose. This isn't my, I'm supposed to be doing like international development, anti-poverty work. And I'm working for the Ontario government. And I, I just, I wish that I could go back to that version of myself and say, come back to the right now and the right here. What are you doing today? That's meaningful today. And just trust, trust that that's going to build and lead and contribute to something. Maybe that's bigger, or maybe you'll change your mind about what bigger looks like. Like either path is okay. At the end of the day, coming back to um, come by, coming back to the moment by moment and living really, uh, yeah, really kind of presently. I think the second thing is that there's. I know very few people who have straight paths to, and then everyone says that and knows that, and then everyone expects that theirs will be different. It would be like, oh no, I'll start my offer, and then I'll build my offer, and then it's gonna be great, and then you know, I'm gonna get my PhD. And those paths don't really exist, and there's a reason for that, and that's because there's so much learning that needs to happen along the way, connections you make, and you change your mind, right? Like what looks amazing and what the goal is today will fundamentally, I hope, fundamentally shifts for, for you and for everyone listening, in five years i hope you're not your goal isn't identical but we're sort of we're sort of conditioned to believe that whatever i want right now in my medium and long term future is definitely the most that's definitely the thing that's going to stay constant and i i don't know very many people for whom that has stayed constant and it's not about not having a vision not having a a, a goal that stuff is all important but recognizing that the journey and the learning is going to shift you, right? And that, and that's the exciting part. You know, who is this this person that I'm going to be in five years? If we have another conversation in five years, I hope you're you're seeing a whole different, exciting, new version of me um, that's closer to that kind of authenticity that I'm that I'm seeking, right? But it's not going to be the CEO of CanWatch who, you know, is discussing with you and you're not going to be the, the CEO of Sex and Self. It's discuss- we're going to be fundamentally different people. And that's so exciting, I think.
0: I think so too. I think it's very daunting when you're young, but I, I, it's a very, like, it's a constant thread when I feel like I ask for mentorship. A lot of people say a very similar thing, which I think is really important for us to kind of hold on to. So I'm really happy you were willing to come and talk to me in person. This is so awesome. nice. It's so nice to not look at a computer screen when I'm recording. Oh, it is so nice. Um, and yeah, where can people find you? Where can people find CanWatch's work if they want to volunteer or support? Yeah, so things? you can find me
1: on, I don't even know my handles though. This is how terrible I am. But you can find me on our website. So www.canwatch.ca. So that's C-A-N-W-A-C-H dot C-A. Uh, And I'm pretty sure it's linked to my LinkedIn and all of our stuff uh, right there on the website. But follow us, our comms, people are amazing. Always putting out good content about our 100, actually now close to 500 members across Canada, uh, Canadian organizations working internationally, uh, connecting to our events. Uh, There's so much good work happening uh, because I have a once in a lifetime team that's doing amazing work. So come out and support.
0: Absolutely. And everything will be linked in the sex and self podcast bio. So if you want to check it out, it's all going to be there, but thank you again so much for coming on. I'm so happy to have you, Julia. Thank you for having me. Make sure to subscribe to the sex and self podcast for more episodes like this and make sure to check out all of Julia's information at the links below. Thanks for listening.